Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of England, episode 153, The Medieval Working Woman. Gosh, by golly and by eck. It feels odd not to have our Henry around. Glorious victories, God's favour, all that sort of thing. And now, we're on to a rather long and rather different run of English history, or at least heading in the direction. And so I think it's time... To pause, gentle listener, to pause. Draw breath. Think of something else for a little while before returning to the relentless turn of the political wheel. Now, you might remember that we had something of a run of episodes on women in history, some of it X-rated to my embarrassment, and I thought I'd better do one more, just one more, before claiming that I'd completed the task of at least bringing us up to date a bit about women, before we start on the reign of Henry VI. So this week, I thought it might not be a bad idea to do something about the working lives of women in the late Middle Ages. Now, I may need to apologise in advance. One of my problems with this kind of timeless, thematic stuff is that I just lose track of what I've said and haven't said. And throughout the writing of this episode, I had this overpowering feel that I'd covered everything that I'd said before. But I looked at my previous scripts, couldn't see it, so look, if I have covered all this before... Please forgive me. Don't shout at me. Maybe gently remind me where I've done it before, if you feel so inclined. Let's start with the rural peasant, given, of course, that this would be far and away the most numerous section of society. And let's start with the bald fact that marriage is far and away the norm for women. Only something like 4% of peasant women remained unmarried. I have to say, I don't have the corresponding figure for men, but the point is, 
that if we're thinking about the working life of peasant women, the vast majority of their working life is within the context of marriage. For young women before marriage, it's by no means impossible that you would have had some provision made for you land-wise. Despite all that stuff about primogeniture and the practice of keeping estates together, it's clear that in practice, parents, of course, did their very best to make sure all their little wiggins were looked after, however small that amount that they could give them might be amongst the peasantry. And even if in many cases the provision that they did make had to be returned when the woman got married. But despite that provision, for many young women looking to start earning, it was most likely to be the case that anything that needed any level of investment was going to be a problem. So you're not going to be a large-scale brewer with the need to get yourself a bunch of barley and a place to brew and all that sort of thing. And bear in mind, you would very commonly be starting this process at the tender age of 12. No need to wait to get a BTEC or an A-level or whatever your local equivalent is where you are. Just straight in there. Essentially, you have two main choices out in the sticks. Become a servant in someone's household or become a wage labourer. Now there were trade-offs. Wage labour would probably earn you more when you did have work, but it was casual labour and there could be significant periods when there was nothing going. Going to service paid less, but had the big advantage of being reliable. And another crucial thing. I don't know about you, maybe you all have a variety of staff knocking around the place, but I've not personally had the pleasure, so my image about domestic service is of rather stuffy dramas from the 18th and 19th century where service implied a social distance. And when the culture had become that servants were to be seen as little as possible and keep their eyes down at their shoes. Well, it didn't used to be like that at all. Quite a wide range of families would have a servant, including the better-than-averagely-off peasant. Service was a very popular way of starting off in a town, if that was your thing. And servant as a word had no negative connotation way back when. It could very well be your friend's daughter who came in as a live-in servant. And let me not give the impression that service was a female-only option. It very much applied to young men as well. However, service was a young woman's job. Once you got married, women assumed a new role. The mater familias, mother of the family or mother of the household. As such, working life was very much about being part of a family unit, whether that be wife and husband or children as well. The household, however, was almost invariably a nuclear family. If the mother-in-law lived at home, it probably meant you had a problem. Within the household, there was relatively little division of labour, although, as we'll come to, there are some divisions. But no, the general rule was that the family had to make do, both men and women were in it together to do what needed to be done to survive. There were few concessions being made about physical labour being the preserve of men. So, so for example, in the much-quoted Luttrell Psalter of the 14th century, there's this lovely picture of a peasant couple stone-breaking in the fields. Though I have to say that the bloke looks to be hard at work while his wife is actually leaning on her hammer, but I assume that simple happen chance, I'm not saying anything by it. To re-emphasise the point, the woman would have boon work to do for the manor, just like the men. And the practice had become very common that land was held in jointure, so if the woman was left a widow, there'd be no danger of her losing her place. 
It was teamwork, ladies and gentlemen. It was teamwork. Though the image of the overworked peasant woman is as common as the overworked mother is today. There's a very, very modern-sounding quote in a book persuading women of the benefits of a life of virginity from the time, and it goes like this. What kind of position is the wife in who, when she comes in, hears the child screaming, sees the cat at the flitch and the dog at the hide, her loaf burning on the hearth and her calf suckling, the pot boiling over into the fire and her husband complaining? Plus a change, some may say, though I'm a strictly partial observer and therefore could not possibly comment about the husband complaining thing. So a woman might spend her day milking, sheep shearing, looking after the pigs and the poultry, making ale, haymaking, breaking stones. And any of these jobs might equally be done by men. If this work was done as wage labour rather than on their own holding, there's no evidence that rates of pay were lower for women than they were for men, or at least there's conflicting evidence either way. So presumably, maybe there's some of it, but it's not uniform. Having said that, there are some jobs that became either the preserve of women or dominated by women. One of the things that might have driven this was that the physical centre of the women's life was slightly different to that of the men's. Men might spend most of their time in the fields, whereas the household was definitely where the woman was expected to be boss. Then, once upon a time in the earlier Middle Ages, ale making was one of those activities very commonly associated with the woman. There were plenty of examples of men making the ale, but it tended to be the woman for the most part, and of course done at home. This changes, though, with the introduction of beer. When hops came to join barley and wheat in ale, it not only added flavour, but also meant that the beer lasted much longer, which in turn meant it could be stored. So rather than the woman making a batch here and there when she had the time, or making a batch for some big event like a feast or market time, it could now be a, the main economic activity done on a larger scale by commercial brewers. And by the late Middle Ages, therefore, men tended to have taken over. Three jobs were always very much the preserve of women: spinning, washing, cooking. No bloke went near the washing thing. Definitely, women's work. So that image about groups of women doing the washing together and having something of a collective chinwag appears to be a stereotype that was actually true. Though before we get into any argy bargy about women and gossip, it was jolly interesting to read about fines for defamation in the Middle Ages. So, gossip has got to be the biggest social activity of the medieval village. Reasonably confident it's still right up there, actually. But hey, and there's evidence for this in that there are a steady stream of defamation charges and fines in the manor court rolls. But interestingly. Despite the fact that the accepted wisdom in the Middle Ages was that it was women who were the main source of gossip, there are just as many entries for blokes as there are for women. Why, I hear you ask, would I even wonder at that? Which is a fair point. Spinning had also been a social activity in the early Middle Ages, but changed very much from the 13th century when the spinning wheel was invented. Though by no means every woman could afford to have a spinning wheel, as I'm sure we discussed some while back, spinning wheels made work much quicker, but it became a much less sociable experience, because spindles could be taken anywhere, while wheels kept women physically stuck over that wheel somewhere. Nor was spinning made any more profitable by the spinning wheel for peasant women. 
however much it helped merchants and their margins. Like wage labour in the agricultural context, the kind of piecework that happened in towns in particular was hard and poorly paid and often unreliable and seasonal. And the mention of piecework also reminds me of one of those fundamentals of the peasant's life. There was no expectation that these small holdings would make a peasant family self-sufficient and actually no ambition to do so. We're not talking about Tom and Barbara and the good life here. So a family would expect to brew up and make some cash on special occasions. They'd expect to sell some of their produce and to buy also what they couldn't easily or economically grow or make. We tend to lump peasants together into one sort of blob, or at least I do, and that's so very much not true. Because the variations in wealth between peasants could be very great, from pretty well off with 25 to 30 acres of arable to the poorest who might have no more than a quarter of that. And at the margins were often the wage labourers, who had very little land indeed. And at these margins it's probably single women who suffered the most, women who might live at the very edge of society. So it's interesting to note that by far the most common crime for women was stealing food, or failing that clothing and household goods. There's the story of Alice of Hales Owen, an estate in the West Midlands. Alice's struggle for survival was so desperate that she was forced to steal and in 1275 was declared persona non gratis. She struggled on for another year, but eventually she was caught stealing a measure of corn and a measure of half of peas, so she set her house on fire and in the light of the flames fled from the village. We don't know where Alice ended up, but it's entirely possible she fled to a town. The time-honoured tradition of fleeing to the town to seek your fortune where the streets were paved with gold, was well in swing by the Middle Ages, and especially during the hard-pressed years of the 13th century, towns were drawing in single women from the surrounding countryside. And this actually seems to have increased after the Black Death, when you might have thought that the pressure would ease. But when they got there, these women didn't find survival easy. Finding accommodation was not necessarily a problem, especially if you landed yourself a job as a live-in servant, which would be the first port of call for most women. But if you imagined you'd just set yourself up in the trade selling beer or a stall selling produce or something like that, you were in for a rude and nasty shock. Getting past your elf and safety these days might feel like a bit of a schlep, but it is nothing compared to the closed shop that is the medieval town. The right to trade in a town without paying the tolls was a valuable and expensive privilege and fiercely monitored and defended. So these women tried to bypass the regulations and payments and, of course, they often got caught. Getting started was a struggle and they were vulnerable to all kinds of exploitation. In 1461, for example, Thomas Hull of Litchfield was hauled up in front of court because he'd got three of his servants pregnant and he was ordered to marry one of them. One survival mechanism was for women to gather together into groups, share the costs of accommodation, work together, that sort of thing. And often these communities of women had a religious dimension, like the Beguine in France. Poor communities of women, so similar to the concept of nuns that there was practically no difference. But inevitably, there was a significant group of women who were forced into prostitution. 
most towns implicitly accepted prostitution as a kind of necessary evil, and therefore with a kind of half-hearted condemnation, and in some cases even regulation. Where there was regulation, it could be pretty helpful actually in protecting women. So it was the gentle and reverend Bishop of Winchester, who owned much of the land in Southwark at the southern end of London Bridge, and an area notorious for its stews and brothels. The Bish had rules to make sure that brothel owners didn't force their women into debt, did not overcharge them or beat them. Officials of the Bishop went round to make sure that women were not being held against their will. But despite their efforts, we know this is pretty much what often happened in brothels around the country. So let us take a case, for example, from the late 15th century about a woman called Ellen Butler. Ellen had been looking for a job as a servant, and she must have been delighted when she came across one Thomas Bowd, who offered her a great-sounding job. But when Ellen arrived, she found that it was, in fact, prostitution. Ellen refused, but the reason we know about her story is because Thomas then had the nerve to get her thrown into prison because she owed him money. The cycle is obvious. Vulnerable women arriving in town, trying to find a position in service, in desperation accepting whatever help comes their way, getting into debt as a result, and then being at the mercy of the unscrupulous. Attitudes towards brothels began to change, though, towards the end of the 15th century. In 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, there is an ordinance in Coventry, City of Dreams, outlawing brothels and prostitution and licensed brothels are finally closed nationally in 1546. One of the difficulties for working women was that they were not really part of the male-dominated system of formal employment, and this began to get worse at the end of the 15th century. Let us take apprenticeships, for example. The system of apprenticeships and guilds was an essential part of power and success in the medieval town. It was the way to acquire privileges and opportunities and influence. And it was also an almost exclusively male preserve. Now this isn't official. I have a powerful feeling again that I've quoted you at some time evidence that legally at least girls could go into trades. But in practice there's only the odd example of women being taken on as apprenticeships and some of those look a bit dodgy. It's possible there are more women than we suppose in effect working in apprenticeships or on a much more informal basis, i.e. working alongside a master or their father and learning the trade thereby. But the point is, they almost exclusively don't get the recognition and privileges that go along with the formal attainment of the title of master. In practice, what happens is that, once married, the family works together to make a living, and they're an indivisible team. While the husband may officially carry the liability and ownership, what he could do would be impossible without his wife. So women effectively learn their trade by working alongside their hub. Nonetheless, there are women who do work independently and tend to gravitate towards particular trades. Service was, as we've said, far and away the most popular, but after that it was victualling and mercantile trades, more than textiles and clothing, and very rarely were women involved in leather and metal trades, with the one exception of working gold, for obvious reasons. And although there is officially no impediment to women working in a trade, there is a slowly gathering swell of male resistance, starting in the 15th century and coming to completion in the 16th. 
So, at one end of this timeline, in 1400, there is an ordinance in York that shows the suspicion attached to women workers when it declared, Henceforth no women of whatever status or condition shall be put among us to weave, in case they spoil the cloth and jeopardise the name of the craft and its income, unless they've been properly taught and are sufficiently knowledgeable to work in the craft. During the 15th century, this antagonism solidifies into outright opposition. For example, in 1461, there was a protest in Bristol against the practice of weavers using their wives, daughters or maidservants to weave, where the male weavers claimed they were not properly trained. The root problem was probably unemployment in the industry, but as a result, the ordinance of weavers in 1461 meant that women were effectively banned from the weaving craft. In 1511, there was a similar process in Norwich, which confirmed the growing formalisation of women being forced out of specialised craft labour. So the picture is, then, of women in towns working not as specialised craft workers, but as doing the variety of tasks required while the husband specialised. And there is evidence of this as early as the statute of 1363, which exempted women from having to follow only one type of trade or craft, as men had to do. So this might look enlightened or advantageous to women. But in fact, it reflected their lower status, their more varied role. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. So put all of this together and you have a thesis by a chap called Goldberg. He argues that after the Black Death, women had a bit of a golden age. There was greater demand for labour than ever before, and it allowed women to build a work identity in a way that had been quite impossible when there were so many people. And it allowed them to build a work identity in a way that had been quite impossible when there were so many people, so much competition for jobs, and labour was so cheap. As a result, the recovery in the population after the Black Death was slowed considerably, because women chose to have children later, women had much greater parity of earning, and a much greater number stayed single by choice. But then, since all good things must come to an end, this starts to reverse in the late 15th and 16th century as women get pushed back into a more traditional role, excluded by men from many trades. The evidence is as sketchy as a professor of sketchiness at Sketchy University. Really, we don't have much evidence about the age of childbearing in the 14th century, for example. Just so happens we do have evidence from the 16th century, but it's difficult to make the comparison. There is some evidence to suggest that women in the 14th century, before the Black Death, therefore, were much more eager to enforce marriage contracts than they were in the late 15th century, which suggests women were keener to be married in the 14th century and rather supports the thesis. But I'm just going to leave Goldberg with you. It's worth saying, of course, that while much of this stuff about roles and status paints by modern eyes a slightly miserable picture, 
but it's always worth remembering that we don't know much about women's attitudes to their roles at the time. And, of course, there would have been many examples like the Whiff of Bath where women did break the mould. And, in fact, we know that they did, from the law and from a particular example, that of Marjorie Kemp. Law first. A woman had the option in law of acting as a femme sole. This meant that she was legally responsible, rather than the normal situation where her husband was actually liable and ultimately owned everything. So the idea of women acting independently was legally recognised and there can't have been much point having the law if it didn't happen. And then Marjorie Kemp. Marjorie is mainly famous for her religious experiences and I believe we've mentioned her before but sitting in the background of Marjorie's story are the details that she gives as she writes and they tell us something. So essentially Marjorie is married and she's a brewer on a major scale. Unfortunately, she hits difficult times, the business folds, and she takes up a new line of trade, which then goes the same way. And the moral of the story is that God is testing Marjorie, and he's telling her something. But in point of fact, at the same time that she was dictating her book, she was being admitted to the prestigious local Guild of the Holy Trinity in Lynn. So it seems that the business failure that apparently set her on the path to God doesn't seem to have been quite as bad after all as she might have said, and that for women they could achieve the success of entering the corridors of power. But most importantly, the whole story just accepts as totally normal that a woman was operating completely independently of her husband and with total ability to shape her own career and deal equally with men. It doesn't seem to be some wild exception, some extraordinary event. There was another circumstance where women were able to change the standard picture, and that was in widowhood. It was a situation and status that was very significant in medieval England, so about 10% of households were run by widows. And widowhood kind of changed the rules, and so it attracted a lot of different attitudes, as it were, on quite a wide range. At one end, in biblical terms, as object of respect and charity but at the other end of the scale as far too independent, avaricious and sexually greedy. For a woman, if you were chasing independence, actually widowhood had much to recommend it. But who you were and where you lived would have a massive impact on the experience and it could all go horribly wrong. Quite apart from the fact your husband has just died, you might possibly have liked him, who knows. For aristocratic women, the register of rich widows created in 1185 is an outrage and a good illustration of the dangers of widowhood. Basically, rich widows were a valuable resource for the crown in the same way that wardships were and the register of rich widows allowed the Angevin kings to control their resource because heiresses were a commodity to be bought and sold, a valuable source of patronage. In theory, the woman had a right of refusal for any marriage. And indeed, in theory, aristocratic women had the right to pay the king a fine to be able to choose the husband that she married next. But in practice, until the 13th century, the pressure to remarry the king's choice was crushing and the fines for freedom pretty much unaffordable to all but the richest. 
In the end, it seems there were plenty of men who shared the idea that effectively selling women for their land was abhorrent, and so a clause appeared in a well-known legal document. No widow shall be compelled to marry so long as she wishes to remain without a husband, but she must give security that she will not marry without royal consent if she holds her land of the crown, or without the consent of whatever other lord she may hold them of. Okay. Hands up anyone who knows where that comes from and which number of claws it is. Answers on the website, and just the most enormous kudos, fame, and status for those of you who get it right. As it happens, unlike the claws about fish weirs on the River Thames, little clue there, this clause turned out to be pretty effective. Widowhood was planned for right from the start at the time of the marriage. So the standard was for the settlement in the event of the man's death to be agreed at the church door just before you got married, or it might be calculated as a third of the husband's holding on the day of his death, and this was kind of a standard arrangement. But the point is that it was custom and practice that the widow should be looked after. Of course, there were plenty of examples where it all went horribly wrong, where nasty children, as they tend to be, or overlords. Tried to rob the widow of her portion, or when nasty husbands stitched their wives up by selling her portion. And there is a killer stat that in the reign of Henry the Third, in just three years, between twelve twenty-seven and twelve thirty, there were five hundred cases concerning the widow's portion or dower, as it was called, of course. Now that evidence can be read a few ways. Could be that a lot of shenanigans went on. Could be that it was jolly complicated legally, but another conclusion you can take is that widows were by and large pretty self-confident and committed to protect their positions. So, in dower cases between 1301 and 1433, that's over a hundred years, widows lost their dower cases outright in only 13% of cases. So, the vast majority would win their argument. In towns, the legal position was similar, and the law provided the widow with a comfortable package. She had a share of the matrimonial house unless she remarried, and if she did, then her entitlement became the standard one third of her first husband's property. Once in possession of her dower, with a roof over her head and a bit of capital burning a hole in her purse, the widow in the town could expect a string of suitors darkening her doorstep and laying themselves at her feet. For all widows, there was a way of keeping all of these potentially self-interested and possibly slightly irritating men at bay by becoming a vowess. The deal here was that the widow hopped along to the local bishop and took a vow of chastity. He then blessed the ring and the mantle that she was to bear to show the world that she'd taken the vow. And so now that meant the widow was free and clear, the medieval equivalent of a permanent sign announcing she was washing her hair that night and for the rest of her nights. There's a mighty famous woman we're going to be coming across soon called Margaret Beaufort, mother of Henry Tudor, who of course becomes Henry the Seventh. She took the unusual step of becoming a vowess while still married to Lord Stanley, which would have been difficult not to take as something of an insult if you were Stanley. I'd have thought. It looks as though about fifty percent of widows in towns got remarried. For the rest, the widow now had the ability, and maybe also obligation, to take over the family business, because it was expected, of course, that business would carry on as usual. And widows, in many though not always, took on the status 
and the role of their dead husband. They took on the right to have apprentices. They took over responsibility and ownership of the firm, all of which sounds great, fine, dandy, equitable and delightfully modern. Equally, we have absolutely no idea whether these women wanted this mantle. Many may have simply had no choice. And peasant women similarly had to pick up the baton and run. There was a cow to be milked, a pig to be turned into bacon, animals to feed. After the Black Death, there was such a premium on finding people that in many places a widow could simply expect to pick up the whole estate, though in others the customary one-third portion applied. One of the interesting wrinkles, just to finish this episode on, was how the peasant families tried to get themselves a break and a retirement after years of back-breaking work, while at the same time avoiding the brutal problems that King Lear had. So in many cases the widow gave over their land to the children so they could get on with their lives. But they stipulated in some detail exactly the style of life they expected to be kept in as a result. So in 1437... Emma of Cranfield was to be given twelve bushels of wheat, two quarts of malt and a peck of oatmeal for porridge every year. In 1281, Agnes was to have a house built for her, measuring thirty by fourteen foot, with three doors and two windows, which seems like an awful lot of doors for something that size, but hey, in the words of Quo, whatever you want, whatever you like and whatever you say. And seriously, it got really complicated. I mean, that's just for starters. In some cases, the widow even took her children to court for not providing the required standard of living. One got the land back, passed it along to someone completely unrelated. Needs must when the devil drives. So there we go. Now the weekly word. Over to you, Kevin. Thanks, David. This episode's word is lawyer. It's a common word for an unpopular profession. And it's a word which entered English in the late 1300s. The word lawyer is like most of our legal terminology in that it came into English after the Norman Conquest, during the period of Middle English. The Normans had to maintain law and order, and their French dialect produced many of our most basic legal terms. Words like legal, judge, jury, judgment, ruling, statute, crime, solicitor, and many others. And the word lawyer entered English during this same general time period. But it didn't actually come from French, at least not directly. Even though the word lawyer is first documented in the late 1300s, its roots go back to the pre-conquest period. The ultimate root of the word lawyer is, of course, law. And law is probably our most basic legal term of all. It was around in the late Old English period. But interestingly, it's not a native English word. So, if it isn't a native English word and it didn't come from the Normans, where did it come from? Well, it came from that other great source of borrowed words during the early Middle Ages, the Vikings. The early Viking invasions of Britain brought settlers who spoke Old Norse, the ancestor of the modern Scandinavian languages. Old Norse actually shared the same Germanic roots as Old English, and the two languages were quite similar at the time. But when it came to the law, each language used some different terms. The Old English word for law or judgment was dome, an early version of the word doom, and also the source of the word deem. So if we make a judgment about something, we deem it to be good or bad. And if we receive a bad judgment, we are doomed. And in fact, in later English, the word doomsday 
was translated as Judgment Day by substituting the French word judgment for the Old English word doom. So the Anglo-Saxons had dome or doom, but the Scandinavian settlers brought their lahu or law. In fact, the word law is one of the earliest attested Norse words in the English language. The word law eventually became part of the name of the region where the Scandinavians settled in Britain, the Dane law, because Danish laws governed the region. The word law soon passed into general use in English, but then the Normans arrived. And as French became the official language of England, many of those French legal terms entered English. And in some cases, native English words like dome either disappeared from the language altogether or were relegated to specific uses. But the word law survived. And in the late 1300s, that word came to describe someone who was skilled at the practice of law. And this is where the French influence came in. In order to describe a legal profession, the word law was given a French ending, and it became lawyer, one who practices law. And lawyer became anglicized over time to just lawyer. After the United States became independent, the legal systems in Britain and America became more distinct over time. In Britain, lawyers assumed distinct roles. Some tried cases in court. Others provided legal advice and guidance. So terms like barrister and solicitor were used to define those specific roles. Scotland also used the term advocate. But in the United States, some of those older distinctions were lost over time. So American English uses the word lawyer without distinction as to the type of law practiced. So that's the word lawyer. I hope I've made my case for it. But if I haven't, I'll throw myself on the mercy of the court. Back to you, David. Lovely jubbly. Thanks, Kevin. Next week, we have the start of a new reign, that of Henry VI. And we'll start with a customary look at the historiography of his reign. Now, a couple of things to say. A couple of weeks ago, I thanked somebody called Mark for the superb piece of work they did, putting a link to my animated maps onto Wikipedia. Mark? Mark who? Dipstick that I am, the person I should have been thanking is David. Thank you, David. It's a triumph. I cannot describe my joy. Some donators to thank. Christian, Russell, Gareth, Paul, Jubal, Alexander, Kent, Derek, Simon, Scott. All of you will be entered for the coin competition, as will all of you lovely, lovely people who give me a monthly donation or use flatter like David and Mary. So that's all, folks. Thanks so much for all your comments on iTunes, the website, Facebook and all that sort of thing. Good luck, everyone, and have a great week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 